stop and take a trip down on my block where you see hidden potential young minds sharper than pencil and ain't afraid to speak they mind if they got something against you we standing with you we tackle issues like civic pride hate will cease to exist let's put our differences aside from my side to your side from dutch town to south side from Penrose to north side from benton park to old north to west end the west side we bless when we step out we stand down rise up stand together wise up this is Stitch Cast Studio, produced by St. Louis Story Stitchers in St. Louis, Missouri. This is a Stitch Cast Studio special edition, The Divided City, titled Trauma as a Culture in Black Families, featuring our special guests, author and educator John A. Wright and Sawande Mustakim, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Washington University. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers, Story Stitchers. All right, let's do this. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to StitchCast Studio. I'm your host, Brandon, and I have the StitchCast with me. First, we got Emira. Say what's up, E. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's Emira here. Glad to be here today. So today we are being joined by, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So first of all, I don't know if I guess know each other, but you guys have a lot in common. But we, we okay, so we're, we're dealing with a couple of educators, um, a couple of doctors. Uh, I don't know if y'all know this, but both of you uh, have committed to, amongst other things, taking certain points in history that deserve more attention and bringing them to the light of day. So please, StitchCast and everybody that's tuning in, please help me in welcoming our very special guest Dr. John A. Wright and also Dr. Shawande Mustakin. Woo! Thank you. So excited to be here. I'm St. Louis and I was born and raised here in St. Louis. Went to Sumner High School, Harris Teachers College and uh, St. Louis University where I got my master's and my doctorate. Uh, I've held almost every position you can think of in education, from classroom teacher to superintendent of schools. Uh, my last job was interim superintendent of St. Louis Public School. Uh, I came out of retirement to do that. Vice Dean of Consequence College in Washington, D.C. I've done international stuff. I'm right now the, uh, I guess you'd say, the counselor, honorary counsel for the Republic of Senegal. I've had that now since 2009. And so I've led groups to Africa, and I've done a number of books on African-American history in St. Louis and in the state. So that's, that's enough of me. And I can put throw more stuff in. I can spend the night talking about me, but we're not here to talk about me. We have mm. answer questions for you. So I guess I'll go ahead and introduce myself. I am the one and only Dr. Shawande Mustakim. I am an associate professor of history and African African American studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, let me think. I was born in Pittsburgh. What August Wilson writes about, I'm from there, but I was raised in Atlanta. And uh, let's see, I got my 20 years ago, about 20, 21 years ago, I made history, but you also could say I made history. I was the first person to ever get a degree in African-American studies from a school in North Carolina called Elon College. And so mm. in 2000, I just felt like black people had a history and a culture that I wanted to get a degree in. And I got an independent major and was the first one to graduate with that degree. Then I went on to get my master's from the Ohio State in um, 
Black Studies from their Department of Black Studies. And then I went on to Michigan State in their um, Comparative Black History program. So it's the only program in the world that trains people to understand the Black experience within and beyond like the African-American experience. So I teach here at Washington University in history and African and African-American studies. And I'm actually the first Black person to ever get tenure in the history department. And I've also written a two-time award-winning book that is in the National African-American History Museum. So I told you wherever I go, I make history, history, I just do it all. Hey, yo, I know y'all heard that. (laughs) Oh, who who are a few of the figures that you're uh, gonna teach about in your course? Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, right now they're thinking about honestly coming in thinking about Black women in general, Black girls, where and how have you been introduced to the study of Black women's history? And they're coming in realizing there's no privilege and there's no centering of that in any curriculum. So they're coming in and right now we're looking at slavery. What do you know about slavery at sea? So they're looking at the unnamed, the one who are left at numbers. And then we're gonna um, we're gonna read Kamala's book. We're gonna read Asada Shakur's book. We're reading a book about Black hair. So it's about people, experiences, and over time. So that way we can understand why have we not ever centered Black women and Black girls in our whole American historical learning. Beautiful. John, where did you, uh, where did your uh, love of uh, history start? How, when, when did you decide to dedicate your life to history? I've always been interested in history since high school. But I started writing after I started working in education and I saw there was no material with us in it. I, I, I tell people it's like going to a family reunion. You're all sitting around the table and you're having a good time eating and they, they bring out the album and they wonder why you are excited about seeing the album. Your family's left out. Mm. You know, we have kids in school. Why aren't they interested in history? Why aren't they all excited about what I told them today? They're not included. Mm-hmm. And I felt that people who feel good about themselves, it's easier for them to feel good about others. Mm. So the best thing we can do with our youngsters, give them a base to feel good about themselves, and they're not angry all the time. You, you've got to have have a baseline to work from. And once you know your history and know from whence you come, you can fight off a lot of this other craziness. And so that got me more interested in history because I'm surrounded by people who are out there with no sense of how they fit in. And whites don't know how they fit in either. They think the world started with them and don't realize how we have an impact of the whole situation where we live. And so that's my, has been my aim and my goal to do that in my writings, to educate people. We have a young lady who's working with my wife now and I ask her questions, no clue what's happening. And also I think we can um, educate whites about their history. I got into debate not too long ago we, about how barbaric other countries were. And I have to remind them, we burned a man alive downtown St. Louis. We have Three-fourths of the town came out to see four black men hung in downtown St. Louis, and their heads were cut off and put in a drugstore window. So we can't talk about other countries beheading people. We've done some of the same things. And so we have to know where we are, and most times we don't know our background, so we beat up other folks. And so we have to make people more sensitive to the situation where we are. 
Mm. If it's okay, I would like to kind of ask a question since, uh, Mr. John, we kind of got you talking. I know you wrote a book called uh, Kimlock about Missouri's first all-black town. And I was wondering for the listeners, if you could kind of explain, like, where what were some of the pros and the cons to being Missouri's first all-black town? Like, how, how, like, what did you find, you know, in your study in that and writing about it? Well... I worked in Kenlock. I became superintendent there during the time they had a court order desegregation plan that was going through. And it was a city that was formed on necessity. All of the city of Berkeley was part of Kenlock. Most people don't know that. Berkeley pulled away, that white part of Kenlock pulled away with all the resources mm. and tax base. And so you had a city that was struggling on its own. And it came up out at the time too right after the East St. Louis race ride. So you had a number of people who came to Kenlock as a safe haven. So you had a mixture of people with all kinds of educational backgrounds. You had people who had doctors, dentists, uh, educated people in the community. So kids had role models. And so you build a city to function with limited resources. Mm. And so I think you have many uh, African people. Jennifer Lewis, you many obviously on BET. Uh, Tyler Perry, she's a Kenlock girl. Mm. So you have a lot of people who come out of Kenlock, and many people got their start in Kenlock. Mm. That's amazing. Uh, Dr. Shawande, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit, uh, you you touched on it a little bit in, tr- in your introduction, but could you talk a little bit about what got you uh, interested in history, at least enough to uh, dedicate your life to it? Yeah, that's a great question. And it also is a difficult question to to really think about uh, one thing because it's a whole continuum. Essentially, I am the daughter of two parents that were addicted to black history. They loved it. So that meant it was a full saturation in my life. My mom, absolute genius in the tech world, but also loved black history. And so we would go to black, we would go to, we would really honestly go to bookstores all the time. So it was sort of like I got a PhD before I even left for college because of how much extra homework that I would have to do for her and how many books that I was reading per week. Um, And so she was the one who really encouraged me to go on and get, to do the the bachelor's, because I wasn't sure. At that time, you know, people are like, you can't, you're not gonna make money. And that didn't matter. I just needed to know where could you go with a degree in in African-American studies? And then it just continued. And then to go to a black studies department at Ohio State, it was just life-changing to walk in and meet all these black faculty who had been studying and had established a department and had fought for it at a university and to learn from them. And then that really set the spark. So from there, then to go on and say, well, I'll, I could either stop here and go maybe teach high school or go teach community college, or I could go on and do my PhD. And doing the PhD was the best thing I could have ever done because I was in Michigan where it's snowing all the time and I can't be distracted from the work. So I really learned how to get even more rigorous in black history and the study of it. And and from there um, in grad school, I went to 25 archives across the world to go and recover this history of the middle passage that I've written in my book. So it started with my mother, but my whole family, my dad, everybody, my grandmother read my book, everybody loved black history. So that's where it started. And then it extended as more people saw my passion and love for black history. They encouraged me to get degrees in it. 
Beautiful. I was going to save it for later in the podcast, but since you've already started uh, touching on the book, it kind of provides a uh, a look on the middle passage that people don't really think about. You know, you know, uh, pe- people kind of kind of just think of it as a trip or whatnot. You know, uh, like it, it wasn't they, they, they don't understand uh, the things that slaves had to endure while on the boats. For the listeners, could you talk a little bit about the type of things that you bring to light that happen in the middle passage that we maybe don't don't think about or even know happen? Sure, thank you. Well, from cover to cover, there's intention to expand the minds of the future. So to have a bloody cover on um, a book in that way and to use words of terror and sex and sickness, this is bringing about a new type of history that is more centered on people. It's not about numbers. It is based upon research, again, going to 25 archives across the world, but I wanted to understand what was the, the slave ship experience like for people? What was the people's experience? And so as I gathered all these documents, then in writing the narrative, and then as I evolved in it, I was telling my students the other day, there's one thing to write, but then there's another thing to write to make people feel, where you learn the art of storytelling that sticks with people, that almost haunts them. And that is what really drove me even more in the writing because to open up the book writing about two Black women is already radical in that moment because our whole understanding of slavery and more importantly, the slave trade is about adult Black men. And so the entire book is really trying to broaden our perspective on the multitudes of people who were forced into this industry. So what I do is for the first time, I'm redefining our understanding of the slave trade, which we know oftentimes is left to the triangular trade and people and goods and they were sent here. But we don't feel, we don't remember. What is that like? So in every chapter, I'm trying to really center what does terror look like from the point of capture to the point of sale when you then are bought and sold on a global market. So that means showing people that you could be out in the garden, you could just be out in the river, you could be sleeping in the bed and get kidnapped and then get forced into an industry and then shipped across the world. And then what happens when you are left in the middle of the ocean and there is no land, no, it's not the plantation. We don't have dogs running after us. We have sharks. So now what does that world look like when the world can't see in the secret world of slavery at sea? So I'm moving through how basically the black body is valued, how black women, how black children, elders, how elders and children actually might have not been preference, but then also the preferences that would, you know, come about on both sides. But I talk about the body, the mind, spirit, suicide, ship revolts, abortions. I also really included uh, an important chapter on the medical history of slavery at sea, where we're seeing slave ship surgeons. So the medical race and medicine starts on slave ships. And then I end really looking at the import of, or really sort of the bringing in of Black people. And then what that brought about the importing of trauma, how it's really looking in this industry, people are broken down. So we're talking about what I say, the making and unmaking of enslaved people. They're broken down through this entire process so that by the time they get here, you can't be sent back. At this point now, your value has a whole other meaning. And so then it just introduced, a, it introduces the full totality of horror that Black people endured in for four centuries because of an industry that was based upon business and the movement of people and money and the sponsoring of destruction of people's lives. So 
in a nutshell, it really goes deep into the heart of the middle pastors like never before in the 18th century. Yes, I love how it helps to counteract a lot of the uh, watering down that uh, people like to do with slavery. It does. It, it, it kind of forces you to to see slaves as people, you know, and uh, and, and, and to know that they, they they weren't like disposed of or anything. People were tortured or uh, and, and killed. I had no idea that they took um, women that couldn't have children uh, out to the ocean and watch sharks eat them. I had no idea about that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and knowing the history does, uh, it, it, it does, it, it does help with uh, preventing a, re- a repeat of that history, like uh, Malcolm X would say. Hey, everybody, it's time right now for our Pick the City Up art interlude, titled Politician, copyright held by the artist, a member of Stitcher's Youth Council, recording by St. Louis Story Stitches. I'm not, I'm not a, a politician. politician. I'm, I'm an inner city kid. kid. We don't we love where I'm from, but I remember when we did. No love and no trust is just the way I got to live. And the way that I got to live is the way that I can get killed. It's crazy how your people want to kill me. My people want to kill me. So I got to stay aggressive because I'll never let them kill me. 19 years of hell, new me is the real me. I never felt my pain, so ain't no way that you can feel me. My freedom got a price and I refuse to let them deal with Got to stay aligned. Can't let them move and can't let them tilt me. It's snakes up in the grass and down the dirty getting filthy because these snakes can never my soul is for eternity. It's burglary. I had to take my name. I refuse to medicate to go and ease the pain. I'm in the streets all on my own. That's why I need the name. And that's my rock. That's the reason I won't lead the game. I swear this stuff can never change. My role model vision getting weak now. Need to see a brother that the system couldn't keep down. People around the corner now. You caught up in the streets now. Got to pick somebody up. That means you got to reach down. They telling me to preach now. These ain't the words of the wise, these are the words of I've seen it with my eyes. A lot of violence, a lot of people losing lives. Everybody got a gun and everybody's got to die. They selling me a dream called freedom, deleting us as people. They lie when they say slavery was illegal. They flood my neighborhood with guns and drugs and all the other modern evils, and they hate to see us recognized as people. America, I don't need you. Dr. Wright. You did an interview where you spoke on how uh, banking systems kind of contributed to the uh, to the to the poverty of Black people in uh, in some ways. Uh, we're gonna get into that deeper a little later, but I wanted to know what 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 do you believe are some of the uh, maybe bad habits that African Americans picked up, or, or or whether whether they were taught to us or thrust upon us, or whatever the case is. What are what what are some things that that, that we experienced fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago that are still causing us to not be able to get ahead now? I think when we were enslaved, when we had the first taste of freedom during Reconstruction, you had a number of Blacks, especially, I know when I grew up in St. Louis, especially, don't have to go back that far. When they came from South to the North, they were entrepreneurs. I mean, you had people who were strong believers. You, you, you had to rely on yourself. I grew up in the Ville area. We had beauticians, barbers, barbers, lawyers, doctors. There was always models out there. You knew you could do it because others had done it. There was always a feeling of hope and possibilities. When you lose that hope and the fact that you can do better, then we have a breakdown in the home and breakdown in society. Many kids out there in high school planning their own funeral right now. If I live, I'll do this. Here's the way I want to be buried. Haven't finished high school, but this is what I want to be buried. If you don't think you're going to live, you don't plan for the future. You don't mind going to jail because you're not going to live long enough. We miseducate our kids. We miseducate the white community. 
we don't judge ourselves on the international standard. I tell kids, you know, we, they say, you talk like you're white. The only I talk with, if I talk African-American, it's poor white folks mixed with African dialect. You look, listen to black talk in South Africa, you listen to black talk in the Caribbean. They don't talk like we talk here. It's a mixture of poor whites. That's what we stayed around in the South. Their language mixed with our language. And I told him, you got to, nothing wrong with what you're talking, but you got to make a switch. You got to have the cultural switch. When you, again, kids who went to Washington, you up where, where the good doctor works, kids when I was going to school, they said, they make the skinker switch. Once they cross skinker, hey, baby, what's going on? When they get across skinker, the other, hello, Mr. Jones, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> <laughs> you make the switch, you know? And so, if you're going to get ahead, nothing wrong with what you're doing, nothing wrong, but you got to be able to make the cultural switch to live in both worlds. I know you got to do that other stuff to survive, but when you come out of that, you got to know what to do. And so we got to teach kids to do that. And we have not done that. We tell them everything you do is bad. You can wear your pants back, but when you cross the other street now, you got to, I was talking with a young man in um, Pantera's one day, paying saying behind the cash register. I said, look, look brother, you don't have to listen to me. Cause when I come back in here, you won't be here. But if you want to stay here, you got to pull your pants up. Cause other folks are not going to tell you, they're going to tell the manager and you're going to be gone. So, and the little sister, she worked with me. I told you that, man. I told you that. So I came back. His pants were up and he's working the cash register. Actually, there was something that I was thinking at right at the end that is reflective of this moment and where we are, which is that there are some parents that aren't sort of invoking the light, you know, the best. But we also have to think about where society is also not doing that or also over-policing or criminalizing. So what I'm thinking about right now, the one other book that I didn't mention that that I'm using is by Monique Morris that is about the criminalization of Black girls. And so right now we got two cases going on as I'm thinking about, again, society and then its view of Black children. And, and so there is at home, but then there's also contesting with the world that's, that is ever anchored on race. And just like right now, all these conversations are mattering in the intergenerational exchange. Yeah. We've got to tell, teach our kids and whites, racism is a business. Mm-hmm. It's a business. It's made of frightening white folks and keeping black folks miserable. Yep. And as long as you do that, you always have a market to make money. I told, I was on the radio the other day, I said, if I was white, I could make me a hell of a lot of money. You know, white folks, they believe everything you tell them. You know, as long as you know what to tell them, you can make money. Look at Donald Trump, $200 million since he, this thing, he knows what to say, how to say it, frightening the hell out of everybody, and bringing in the money. I said, one thing, you know, if you're in a store and your business is stealing, get your white partner. Let them follow you all over the store while your white partner take the whole store out. You know, uh, because people use race, and they've been trained to ignore facts and base all their activity on race. And we have to teach them that the society don't love white people. They love the money they bring to them. And so they, they're pawns in the game. And we're pawns in the game. We have to know Reverend Barber is trying to show poor folks, black and white, we're all in this together. Most definitely. Um, I agree with both of y'all. And uh, I had a question, and it pertains to both uh, of our guests today. So my question is, I know the that trauma can be generational, even if like some people believe it or not. Um, at least for me, I believe it. 
And uh, I know it's very prevalent in black communities because of what we had to deal with with slavery and then even with uh, the Jim Crow laws and all that, how it like pertains to us today in like 2021. But my question was, how does the trauma follow like our white counterparts? Like I know, for example, I see it in how the biases they show towards us in everyday society, but I want to know any other ways that you to notice. You know, with our white, friends out there, it's hard for them to break loose because they've been taught, carefully taught, some of the habits and the hatreds they have. Their mother has taught them, their father has taught them, the church has taught them. Uh, I was in a situation about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. A woman started crying. She said, where can I go to get away from them? I keep moving, they keep coming. Uh, You have people Look at the young kids. Said, I don't want my kids to play with them. Next thing they want to get married. They're baby, they're putting them in the bed, in the bedroom before they even get out of the kindergarten. But it, and it's ingrained in them. So how do we make them to make a switch? It's a lot invested because they've ran from black people so many times, sold their homes, moved far away. And we're saying it's okay. You, you got this thing all wrong. But my preacher told me this. My mother told me this. My grandmother told me this. And you tell me they're all wrong. I've got too many feelings invested to make an easy switch. Young people, I feel very good about the young, young people growing up now. They don't carry the baggage of hatred with them. When I see uh, people say, I hate these French-eyed folks talking about Oriental, they hate them because they're Oriental. Babies, hate them. Taught this, is taught, carefully taught. People aren't born that way, they're carefully taught over time. And we have to, black history, I was telling someone, yeah, we're good this month. We'll go back in the closet next month. You know, it's, uh, when all know, know we can, people call me, ask me questions. I say, okay, it's good for this month. Now, what are you gonna do with next month? Uh, <laughs> we'll go back in the closet for another year. Uh, but we got to mix it in and make sure it's wholesome history is taught where it's profit appropriate to bring it in every day of the year. Mm. Shouldn't be Black History Month; it should be every day month for Black folks. But we got to work with it. And trauma is, like you say, it's out there. It starts. We live in a traumatic world of being Black. Where we live, no grocery stores, no uh, pharmacy, killings going on, shootings going on. When I grew up. Uh, you could kill another black person, kill another black person, it wouldn't make any difference. Get you a good lawyer, you're home the next day. You hurt, you break, you're breaking a white story, you're going to jail. So I wanna sort of extend on this and maybe look at it from another perspective, given what I am confronting being younger in, an, in, in another way of interacting with the future. And I'm saying that I grew up in Atlanta which might be understood as predominantly black, but I went to a very international high school, which was predominantly white, then became 20% white, 70% black, 10% international. I played soccer, I played softball. So I had an understanding of how to interact with all kinds of different types of people. But then it is about how are the ways that we can introduce people to the everyday racisms, to the biases that are held, We're socialized, all of us, as a planet and a world at home and then beyond that. So within many communities, white, 
Asian, Black, Jewish, there are socializations. And then there are, there's the outside education that has come. So there's a cross section. And what I'm getting at is that what I've done is use education as a way to empower many within and beyond just African-Americans and just white. So what that means is now for 13 years, I've seen white students show up in numbers to learn, to want to be there. So we, I'm not one who will say that we're ju it, it's just wrong. We got to look at where are the points of activation? Where and how can we create the better future without just sort of knocking it down? And so that means that now there are doctors and lawyers who have taken many classes from me and then learn how to be at the table with one another, another and how to understand the deeper trenches of racism and how that can play out, but where and how we can come together. So I'm not a divider. I'm the one who wants to bridge and bring people together. So I'm the one who's like, hey, now you got to mentor the next level. So whatever that it's been, this is a new day. And where and how do we take the empowerment to the next level? So I'm getting excited because this is where the real work that I do comes in. Mm -hmm. Everyone matters at my table mm -hmm. and in these classrooms, virtual, there, in person, and it always will. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Right. I tell white, you can change the world by changing your family. You know, if you change your family, you do a lot for a lot of folks. That's the hardest thing to do. You see, you come out of the community. And yeah, do we're living in a folks. very fractured time that it doesn't right now pay to sort of be against our family, but it is about introducing them, bring, you know, letting them read the books you're reading or bringing up questions that, that do come up. But I will actually even remind us about something else. There's one thing to say in the they of race that we're not thinking about industries that are reproducing these ideas that oftentimes we even perpetuate. What that means is that we still don't have a, a Black version of Steve Jobs. We can't imagine a Black Mark Zuckerberg. We have not seen that because we're not demanding the representation of Black people within the tech world. But we're all over social media. We are trying to get beyond the algorithms. Hmm. But as a daughter of a techie, I'm thinking about this is 30, 40 years of Black people who have been invisible because the tech world is white. And then now we're getting into a whole new world of surveillance and this whole like in communities and all of it. And so if it's left just at the anchor of whiteness, then we gotta sort of understand like where and how are black people coming in on this to be a part of this conversation or even leading it in other ways. So that is gonna be empower it's gonna be powerful and more important because we're all at home right now. The institution that is being built and rebuilt over and over is the internet and the tech world. It is about bringing us into that industry even more. I also have a question too. Um, I was watching, I was on social media and <laughs> and I, I saw this guy kind of talking about how, you know, a lot of times, like as you know, the black, the black culture sells trauma, you know, and I really sat and thought about that, you know, within the music and the movies, you know, even sometimes in the fashion, you know, it's it's all kind of like trauma driven. And I wanted to know if you all um, think or even have hope that there will be a time 
when we're not trying to make money or we don't have to use our pain points, you know, we don't have to sell our pain points. Well, I can listen to music on the radio and I can tell the age it was developed. I can tell blues, the period, which it came out of. I can tell this latest stuff that's out there now, you can tell that period. You can tell the 60s, uh, those songs. So I think the music determines lets us know that where we are. By listening to the music, we can tell where we are. And as the, this music that we have listened to now is going to change because the world will change and we'll, the music will follow the world that we live in. And I think it, it, it's going to change. And I think uh, that each generation brings on a new set of music, a new set of tunes that we listen to that reflect the world we live in. And we draw our resources for our music from the world around us. And uh, it tells us where we are by listening to the music. And so I think we have to know that we can learn from that, but know that it will change. Most definitely. And the thing is, I want to add on top of that, just because like I'm a saxophonist, by the way, and the thing is, I've been studying jazz ever since I was at the age of seven. So like by really understanding like black music and actually understand like black culture i feel like that is very true because like from the 60s and the late 50s it was a it was a big uh jazz uh era that was actually happening and the thing is a lot of it was like a lot of things that was going on around that time like especially segregation and when people was actually having times where uh a lot of the musicians like cannonball from charlie parker from john culture from eva miles and stuff like that like it was really hard for them just to express their music because the music meant a lot of things they were dealing in the actual real life, you know. So the thing is, it's like I really, they, they really hit it right, right on the nail, right, most definitely right on the nail. Yeah, and, and as a musician myself and one who is now having a whole new view of the evolution of Black music more thinking about those who can play instruments. You now are a rarity, and we never thought we were going to be there. How did we get there, and why, and how did the community ever let that happen? So the fact that I can be out, I was performing with different musicians across St. Louis, and there was one time where there was this older African-American guy, and he could not understand how someone could use their fingers to make music on a guitar and he thought, you're playing a magic trick with me. And then I began to hear more stories of kids that have no exposure. So is it the fault of the schools? Because when I think about it, my great grandmother had a, a piano in her apartment. We can't imagine that now. So I was fortunate in college to take this class called African-American Composers. That really should be taught in high school. It should be taught in middle school. Honestly, someone shouldn't have to pay freaking thousands of dollars to be exposed mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. But that is on top of all these other conversations of where are we in it? We can't be one dimensional. We've got to look at all of it. So to go back to your question, and as one who has really written about this business, if we're talking about selling, then we definitely can't forget about the buying because we, mm. the world we buy into, we can, mm. we can modify. Hello, it is Black History Month. And guess who always remembers this Black History Month more than anybody else? Coca-Cola, mm. because yeah. are always rampant. 
And then it is about, again, we're buying and we're selling. We're wearing the Angela Davis t-shirt and Sada Shakur, haven't read the book, don't know about the history in all of it. And so it is a continuous cycle that we've got to be more attentive to what we are also replicating while also saying, hey, 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 we were born into it. So where and how do we begin to stop those cycles and say, let's go back to bringing um, music into the schools, into the homes, but learning how to play. Not just, yes, know about Coltrane. Know about all the main, know about Alice Coltrane, but do you know how to play? Do you know how to play any of these instruments at all? Definitely. I went to a uh, performing arts school, uh, and so I definitely know about the importance of having uh, music in the school system. I actually, uh, I, uh, I wasn't gonna bring this up, but I was actually part of the uh, one of the first African-American history classes that we had at that school. And the, the first year they had that class, they didn't even have a name for it. I think they called it like applied studies or something like that. They didn't even have a name for it. Basically, it's just when it comes down to the, when it comes down to just like kids and teenagers and even just adults honestly it's like we don't have those type of opportunities when we even trying to strive for those type of things so the thing is like for example i know when i was in high school like i really didn't have no jazz education honestly i mean my father played and then he just i learned everything from what he told me for real for real so from like besides going on youtube and playing out in the street and you know other things other thing like that would have not had to use really just use my ears and at the same time even though that my uh my teacher was of a different different uh ethnicity whatever or not I still would just ask them, like, dude, like, I want to learn the language because, like, the things that I'm playing, the things that I'm learning, I mean, jazz and music is a universal language. So it's like, since you older than me, since you have the tools, how come you don't teach me? And it just wasn't trying to seem like he was trying to teach me for real, for real. From high school, from college, outside of college. So, I mean, honestly, I really can't say that I really have, like, a jazz education for real, for real. But, I mean, I can play it confidently. And then just because I put that work in, but I just feel like that, like, I feel we just start kids off at a younger age, even from the parents, if this is something they really want to get into, whatever not, you know what I'm saying? Just doing whatever it takes for our parents and our leaders and even mentors just to like point people in the right direction so people can get the right information that they need so they can succeed. You know, I just feel like, especially with the arts, we'll come down to like finances, education, overall those things are really important, especially in the black community. And that really, I think, depends on the city. I'm from Atlanta, so there was an emphasis on the cultural immersion far younger. I went to an arts exchange camp. That meant I was singing and acting and being and dancing and learning and being exposed at like age 10, 11 and 12. And in fact, like there are people who now work like in LA and New York who, who are like screenwriters or producers of different kinds. But I looked at it came because I was in a city with a lot of black people who were not just working class. It was a full spectrum of you were really exposed to black greatness all the time and I was raised to be great and then was exposed to all of that. So it is about how we reimagine a future where we can bring about these earlier exposures, not waiting until, oh, you're almost gonna go to college. We're privileging that. But we need to start earlier, but we need to imagine that collectively and intergenerational. Mm. So that we can keep people awake, engaged, and then where communally or collectively, this can continue in 10 and 20 and 50 years and we're not relying upon one person. We really need to have more of these conversations. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like there's like this, this like, I would say like a, a spirit of like jealousy, I would think in this city almost, because it's like, um, it feels like, you know, when somebody's doing good, 
the next person would try to knock them down or if somebody needs like a certain some information like you can't it's like very rare where you can get it from those in your circle or somebody in your circle wants to like you know give you information that could push you to the next level so i want to know how do you all think you know just the trauma that we've experienced as a people kind of feeds into that that jealousy and not wanting to see each other prosper or you know not wanting to really push for unity and to strive and thrive together well i will say from the perspective of st louis coming from atlanta it's a huge shift coming here to st louis it's cliquish it's very it's like a medium city that <laughs> it's real though. It's real. I, yo, it's, I've never heard. I'm sorry. I just, I just, I've never heard nobody use that word to describe this, uh, this city. Well, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's better today than it was yesterday. I want you to know that. I'm so sure, but I'm like, whoa, I feel like I'm in the 1980s sometimes up in this medium city. So um, I do think it is about the city, the state, even how it, you know, views all of it to me and the culture that's created out of it. But what you're speaking to is something very common that does come up within the African-American community that, you know, sort of the crabs in a barrel. But I think really fundamentally that goes back to exposure. Jealousy happens all the time, but that really goes back to an insecurity because, well, why wasn't I exposed? So in that way, you know, to pick on someone and say, would you talk white or you're so smart or whatever? Well, you should want to be smart too. So in that way, it is like, we can get there, we can hope for it, but it is about changing the conversation. It's about really thinking about where, what generation are we at now? What does bullying look like? What is it looking like when we're not in the buildings? And then where and how is identity now really going to begin to expand when we're not really having those in-person interactions like we, we did all the time. So a lot's gonna change. And then we gotta think about how to deal with one another, like through a computer, a lot, yeah. It's, it's a lot to think about. It's difficult because you can't control jealousy. It's just about us learning our own emotional intelligence and beginning to recognize where can we come together as opposed to, oh, I think you're better. What is that going to do? You know, what happens when we work together? You know, everyone, you have to remember, St. Louis was a segregated town. It's a small, big city. And everyone knew each other. But that's changing because people are moving all over the place now. They're going to school. When I grew up, you either went to one or two high schools. Everybody knew each other. You went to, if you didn't know them, somebody else knew them. And you're all in the same organizations. Leadership positions were limited. As a result of that, everyone was trying to get those same few positions. And that was by design. Uh, things have opened up so much. When I came along, I had, when I was superintendent of schools in Kellogg, Missouri, I was the only superintendent in the state, black superintendent, and one of 15 in America. Think about that. Only one of 15 in America. There were districts who wouldn't even interview. When I was in St. Louis U, they put my name down for a principalship in one of our county districts. And they said, we didn't want any black folks. So you can, they told me, you can't post here. We send you the best students we had. If you don't want it, you can't post here. That person now, they, that school district hires an African-American as assistant superintendent. But there were limited positions and folks fought hard for those positions. But there are so many opportunities now, it's not as bad as it used to be. Because people get interviewed now, they don't even know they're being interviewed. We've come a long ways. 
And to appreciate that, you have to know where you come from. Wow, that's a that that's perfect for the uh, next question I want to ask. Uh, you did an interview speaking about gateway and uh, bank systems and how uh, how uh, African Americans couldn't get loans for a while and whatnot. Um, first, would you mind uh, for, for people that are listening here that didn't see that interview, would you mind reiterating a little bit of that? I feel like this is the perfect example of uh, today. Uh, pe- people my age that uh, live in poverty don't quite understand why they live in poverty or poverty or why their parents didn't own land or have a house or anything like that. You know, they, they didn't quite, they don't quite understand it. This is the perfect uh, example to me of something that happened in history that affects uh, the people of today and the people of today have no idea how they got where they're at. So could you uh, uh, reiterate a little bit of that? Like I said, racism is a business and you have slum property. The people make a hell of a lot of money on slum property. Mm. And St. Louis had an area where they signed for black people. It was in the paper. They had a meeting with Negro areas, Negro districts. Relatives agreed they would not sell homes by that Negro district. The thing you have to watch out for, and if you look at history, when they started building homes in North County during the 60s, housing opened up for us in other areas. Why did it open up? You had to make white folks miserable so they want to move to North County's new homes. St. Charles started building new homes. So where can we put black folks? So we put them in black North County. So you got to get scared white folks out of North County. So they'll go to St. Charles to the new home. And we're always chasing. When I lived in the Ville, we had a number of businesses there. The money circulated several times before it left. Today, we moved to areas where no one supports our business. We don't have businesses there. And so they make money off of traffic tickets because the money doesn't circulate. People aren't hired in the community because there are no business to hire them. So how do we support that? We give traffic tickets. We only give loans to people who are back in slums. We stay five or six years. We owe more in the house than it's worth. So we go off and leave it and become slum property. My mother and I owned a home on Lavity. They had it in 1949, $15,000. In 1993, it was worth $35,000. Man wanted to get a loan for it, and so he can't give you a loan for it. He had the money, so you gotta put the money in, in the bank. He kept in the shoe can. He worked with white family over in one of the white neighborhoods. So he saved his money in the shoe can. So he said, you gotta put it in the bank. Put it in there for two months. Then we'll get back to you. <laughs> he did that. They said, well, you're too old. You don't need to back. But they couldn't discriminate. I kept calling. The relatives kept calling him. So finally, they let him buy the home. He died a few years, a few months later. Folks vandalized the place. It went up for sale for 10000 Now you can buy it for 2500 But that's the story. Where we bought homes determined the value. I bought a home in University City. When I sold it to move... Seven years ago, nine years ago, I made eight, eight times what I paid for it. Look at my mother's home over 60 years, barely double, barely double. I buy a home, make eight times what I paid for. There's a well bought it from. Folks running from across the street from me now, home sold for 35,000, now you're almost going for a million. It's where you live, where it's valued. Where we buy, the value doesn't go up. Wow. That just um that just makes me think of like uh all the people getting really involved in stocks 
right now and especially the younger generation like learning more and more about it from like TikTok and just social media in general and how um I don't know if y'all saw it but like recently in the news in media there was um some big stocks going in and you know they did like penny stocks <laughs> and they got rich off of it yeah and all of the big guys they were like oh no we got to pull it out we got to stop and they saw the, you know, the little guys are getting big and they were like, oh no, we got to stop the whole market. They've never done that until like, you know, you started learning how to do it. So it's crazy. I don't know, is it just me or does it feel like we're in the middle of like a wealth transfer? It feels like, it feels like that. And it feels like a lot of the people that are on top, like are really not wanting to yield, but it's just kind of still slowly but surely happening. Your generation is more, Online, And that's the other thing about Aquarian energy. It is massive online learning and education. And so the investment in this digital economy is all in line with that. And then what happens when Black people are smart enough to really figure that out and we got time to be at home? Mm. This is really about to change the narrative. And it should have, but again, this is about the exposure. Because we've had so many billionaires before, but where are they in our remembrance? We're not, ta we're not talking about them. Um, so this is a new day and it's exciting to think about that because I ask and my students even say to me all the time, why do the business students get away with not having to think about racism or think about race? And why do they not have to take or think about the conversations that we are? So in the same way, right now, it's a new day that all of a sudden I have finance students in a slavery and memory course that I'm teaching and large numbers more coming from biology and finance than ever before. And so that means that, oh, I can get them to understand, okay, be careful with gentrification, with what you are investing in to right. say that this is the better future that can be very white anchored without understanding the very delicate relationship with African-Americans or just people of African descent within these many cities. Yeah. Uh, I was so excited. I knew this was going to be fire. I just want to say that. I just want to say hey, I knew this was going to be so fire. I already yeah. knew what time it was. Great. I'm looking forward to us staying in touch and maybe creating some magnificent club, some whatever that, because yes. I'm about empowerment. Thank y'all so much. Make sure that y'all staying safe and all of that. And we'll see you next month. Stitchcast Studio Session 2 in 2021 is sponsored by the Spirit of St. Louis Women's Fund three-year grant from 2020 to 2022, Arts and Education Council PNC grant, and Lush Corporation's The Charity Pot. This episode of Stitchcast Studio Special Edition, The Divided City, is funded by the Divided City Initiative. The Divided City is a joint project of the Center for Humanities and the Sam Fox School, College of Architecture and Urban Design at Washington University in St. Louis. The Divided City is funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. They say who that, but you already knew that. That beat them story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches, story stitches.